In a few weeks, the Philippines will have elections for local and national government offices. Voting is an important civic duty, which we as citizens of this country or any country should fulfill. Matthew chapter 22, verse 21 reminds us that we have responsibilities in the world in which we live. And part of that responsibility is prayerfully making a God-honoring decision on whom to vote for. When we vote, we're deciding on whom we believe would be the best leader for the position they're running for. But how does one decide who is the best and most qualified leader? Defining leadership is tricky. If you ask 10 people to give you a definition for leadership, you may get 15 different answers. Everyone has their own definition for leadership. Often their own experience, perception, and bias drive who they believe to be the best and most qualified leader. So let's look in the Bible to see what qualities God wants us to consider and prayerfully determine who is the best person to be in leadership. Whether in the church, in any company, or in government, it is important to have the right leaders in place or else it is a recipe for disaster. The wrong leader may lead to the decline of a church or an organization or may lead to inefficient or ineffective government. So the four biblical qualities of a leader we will be discussing can be applied to more than those seeking political office. It can be used to evaluate leaders of churches, schools, NGOs, businesses, and pretty much any organization. If you have your Bibles, would you please turn with me to Psalm 78 as we take a look at verses 70 to 72. Psalm chapter 78, verses 70 to 72. This is a psalm of Asaph that traces God's kindness and grace to rebellious Israel. Asaph reviews how Israel forgot God's work in their lives, but how God graciously delivered them time and time again. In fact, God choosing David to be their king was the climax of this psalm, evidencing God's grace to Israel by giving them such a wonderful leader in the person of King David. David was Israel's greatest king, one who had his heart fully committed to God and walked in his ways. He wasn't perfect, as no one is, but he was described as a great godly leader for Israel. From Asaph's divinely inspired description of why God chose David to lead Israel, we can draw out four biblical qualities we can use to assess who would be the best person to lead any political, secular, or spiritual office. Or perhaps, if you are a leader or see yourself as a potential leader, you can begin to cultivate these four qualities. I read now verses 70 to 71. He also chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the ewes that had young, he brought him to shepherd Jacob his people and Israel his inheritance. The Bible tells us here in verses 70 to 71 that God chose David to be king over Israel and selected this shepherd of sheep to be the shepherd of his people. The writer of the psalm even mentions that one of the responsibilities of David as a shepherd was to care for the female sheep that were nursing her young sheep. Now, why does the writer have to mention this? I believe it was to show that David came to the role of being king with much experience, from shepherding sheep to shepherding people. As a shepherd, David would have had to experience organizing the many sheep under his care. He would have to be responsible for feeding them and ensuring their safety. He would have to account for each one of them and go out to seek the ones who were lost, for he could not allow any one of them to be left behind or missing. All of these life experiences developed qualities in David that would help him to be an effective king. In fact, when he wrote Psalm 23, he hearkened back to his shepherding days and noted how the Lord God was his shepherd and took care of him. 
His days as a shepherd left an indelible mark in his life. You see, the first quality of leadership, whether in the secular or spiritual world, is number one, life experience. Life experience. Remember that when the prophet Samuel anointed David at a young age, probably between the ages of 10 to 15, to be king, David didn't immediately become king. God allowed David to go through many life experiences, such as fighting Goliath and serving in the courts of King Saul as a musician before he ever became king. Through these experiences, David would learn soft and hard skills, such as courage, inspiring people, trusting in God, working with difficult and different people, dealing with court intrigue, and dealing with heartache. The Bible tells us that David became king over the tribe of Judah at the age of 30, according to 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 4. And in the next verse, we're told that seven and a half years later, David becomes king over all the 12 tribes of Israel, closer to the age of 38. David would die at the age of 70 or 71, having reigned for 40 years. That means more than one half of his life was gaining experience to be king over the 12 tribes of Israel where he ruled for 33 years. Experience is so important that in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6, the Apostle Paul, in writing to Timothy, warns him against choosing someone who is new to the faith and spiritually immature and inexperienced to be in a position of spiritual leadership. In fact, the qualifications for both elders and deacons in the church are qualities of spiritual maturity that only come through the experience of living out the Christian life, transformed by the Holy Spirit and the real-life application of God's Word over time. Many experts in leadership studies have noted that experience is even more important than formal education. While having a good and sound education is important to the development of a person, there are many effective leaders who don't have formal education. So it doesn't matter if you have a master's or a doctorate, as many successful leaders in technology today, for example, dropped out of college. People like Larry Ellison of Oracle, Jan Koob, inventor of WhatsApp, Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook, Evan Williams, co-founder of Twitter, Bill Gates, co-founder of Microsoft, Michael Dell of Dell Computing, Steve Jobs of Apple, and others. Colonel Harlan Sanders overcame his lack of education to become a titan of the fried chicken business because of experience. His father died when he was six years old, and since his mother worked, he was forced to cook for his family. After dropping out of elementary, Sanders worked many jobs, including firefighter, steamboat driver, and insurance salesman. Sanders' cooking and business experience helped him make millions as the founder of Kentucky Fried Chicken, now called KFC. Charles Dickens, author of numerous classics including Oliver Twist, A Tale of Two Cities, and A Christmas Carol, attended elementary until his life took a twist of its own when his father was imprisoned for debt. At age 12, he left school and began working 10-hour days in a boot-blacking factory. Dickens later worked as a law clerk and a court stenographer. At age 22, he became a journalist, reporting on parliamentary debate and covering election campaigns for a newspaper, until he began to write books and became famous. Albert Einstein, a Nobel Prize-winning physicist, famous for his theory of relativity and contributions to quantum theory and statistical mechanics, dropped out of high school at age 15 and said, the only source of knowledge is experience. Recently, many leading companies have changed their mindset about requiring college degrees, including Google, Netflix, Tesla, IBM, 
Penguin Random House, Bank of America, Hilton, and Apple. In fact, nearly half of Apple's U.S. workforce include people without the standard four-year college degree. Harvard Business School study found that 37% of employers rank experience as the most important qualification in an applicant, not educational attainment. Now, please listen carefully. As some young people may be thinking, they should just go ahead and quit school and immediately get a job and gain experience, which would then serve them better in life. That is definitely not what I'm advocating for. There is great value in education. And if you have the privilege of having good education, then continuing it for the Lord's glory. I went to formal school for 28 years of my life and still continue to learn. We never stop learning. My point is to show that in the world, experience is critically important to serve as a leader. Formal education alone is not enough to step then into the position of leadership. There must be experience, and this is a biblical principle. When appointing, selecting, and choosing leaders, ask yourself, what is the life experience of that person? Does his or her life experience produce in him and her life skills that will help in the role of leadership he or she is being put in? Look again with me at verses 70 to 71. He also chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the ewes that had young, he brought him to shepherd Jacob his people and Israel his inheritance. We see from these verses another essential quality of a leader that is important in both the secular and spiritual worlds, and it is this, number two, care for people. Care for people. Not only did David have experience through his shepherding, but he also learned how to deeply care for the sheep, especially the gentleness needed in caring for female sheep that were nursing their young. Of all the tasks of a shepherd, this is what was singled out by the psalmist. This would have translated to how David shepherded the people of Israel as he genuinely and gently cared for them. We see this leadership quality throughout his life. Even as a young boy, he cared enough to boldly confront the giant Goliath who was taunting God and his people to give the Israelites courage to fight the Philistines. When he became king, David showed kindness and care to the house of Saul, asking in 2 Samuel chapter 9 if there was anyone left from Saul and Jonathan's royal family to whom he can show kindness. And there was Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, who was physically handicapped. And David brought him into his royal courts to take care of him. When his son Absalom tried to usurp his power and temporarily force David to leave Jerusalem, 2 Samuel chapter 15 recounts how David cared more for the people than his position and asked people not to go with him and asked that the Ark of the Covenant be left in Jerusalem. When looking for a place to build an altar to the Lord, David would not take advantage of Arauna, the Jebusite, in 2 Samuel chapter 24, but insisted on paying for the land that he needed. David truly cared for his people. A good leader is one who genuinely cares for the people he's leading or going to lead. He doesn't see them as people he can take advantage of or step all over or as a means to boost his ego or deal with his insecurities. That's why Jesus exemplified true leadership when he washed the feet of his disciples before he went to the cross and showed true servant leadership. He told the disciples in John chapter 13 that as he washed their feet, so they must serve others in humility as leaders. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 3, 
the Apostle Peter reminded church leaders not to lord over the people they serve in their positions because leaders are to serve and care for others. Leaders who don't care for people are usually not very effective leaders because people will be able to see right through them or soon realize that what they do is self-serving and not to the benefit of those they lead. But it can be hard to look into the hearts of the people who are in leadership to see if they really care for the people or it's just a show. So you have to observe and ask questions. Perhaps these three simple things will help you assess if a leader really cares or not. First, ask the question, why does the person want to be in that position of leadership? What is their vision and plan to help the people they lead? Second, see what they're willing to do in order to sacrifice for the people they lead, even to their own inconvenience. Do they feel entitled or are they willing to sacrifice? Third, observe how they treat others, especially how they treat those who are under them. The demands of leadership are many, but at the end of the day, it is about the people they serve and genuine care for people will ensure that the work of leadership will never overshadow or take precedence over the responsibility they have to the people they are called to lead. Didi Henley wrote in a Forbes article, A few years ago, I worked with a large healthcare client with 74,000 employees. They built an internal university and invite every clinic manager to attend a management development program for five days. Midweek, the CEO stops to do a town hall where he fields questions and shares whatever information is helpful. More importantly, he communicates personally and individually that he cares about each and every one of those 24 clinic managers. How does he manage to connect in a meaningful way with each of those managers? Well, he's a trick that not many know about. In the days before he shows up, his assistant compiles a document with each clinic manager's photo, name, and important information about them, a son or daughter graduating, a recent surgery, a big win at work. Before he steps into the room, he memorizes this information. Once there, he's able to address every person by name and ask them about their lives. It takes time and attention to do this, but the impact is worth it. I saw it for myself. People felt genuinely cared for. Now, is the CEO focused on results? He sure is. Is he focused on company growth? Ultimately, yes. But in that moment, his focus is on a different job entirely. His attention is focused on communicating to his team that he cares. And that's your job as a leader also. Caring about people also impacts employee engagement. A Gallup survey about what employees want from their manager notes that among employees who strongly agree that they can approach their manager with any type of question, 54% are engaged. When employees strongly disagree, only 2% are engaged, while 65% are actively disengaged. You see, getting things done and instilling discipline and respect is not mutually exclusive with being nice and caring. One can do things with kindness and care, and one can do things with cruelty and coldness and get the same results. But what type of leader would you like to have lead you and inspire you? The book, The Power of Nice, tells the story of General Dwight D. Eisenhower, supreme commander of the Allied forces in World War II. The story goes that during World War II, General Eisenhower would regularly walk among his troops. One particular day, he noticed a young soldier who seemed quiet and depressed. How are you feeling, son, he asked. The soldier replied, General, 
I'm feeling awfully nervous. I was wounded two months ago and just got back from the hospital yesterday. I don't feel so good. The author of this book states, Many generals would have tried to buck up the frightened soldier's spirit, saying, You don't need to be scared. You've got the best army in the world behind you. Instead, Eisenhower said, Well, you and I are a great pair then, because I'm nervous too. Maybe if we just walk along together to the river, we'll be good for each other. Such humble leaders have no problem with vulnerability because they truly care about those they lead and realize that such vulnerability creates greater trust and more loyal followers. Think about how this young soldier must have felt knowing that this powerful leader not only cared about him individually, but was also willing to share with him that he was nervous as well. Have you ever had such a leader in your life? General Eisenhower didn't have to be anyone but himself. He was a leader who cared about every soldier individually in deep ways. There's much we can learn about his caring leadership. In a speech to graduating cadets at the Royal British Military Academy in 1944, producing officers for the British Army, he said, You must know every single one of your men. It is not enough that you are the best soldier in that unit, that you are the strongest, the toughest, the most durable, the best equipped. Technically, you must be their leader, their father, their mentor, even if you're half their age. You must understand their problems. You must keep them out of trouble if they get in trouble. You must be the one who goes to their rescue. That cultivation of human understanding between you and your men is one part that you must yet master, and you must master it quickly. My friends, when appointing or selecting leaders in government, secular or spiritual organizations, ask yourself the question, do they genuinely care for the people they are to lead? I read now the first part of verse 72. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart. The next great quality of leadership that King David exhibited was that he led the people of Israel with integrity of heart, meaning he led with a good and godly character. Leadership quality number three, a good and godly character. A good and godly character. In other words, David was God-fearing. This does not mean he didn't make mistakes. David was also a sinful, flawed man who made some terrible mistakes in his life, one of which was his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba, a married woman. And to cover up his sin, he had her husband, Uriah, killed in battle. Now you may wonder, how can the Bible describe David then as a man who ruled with character and integrity of heart? The reason was because David was willing to admit his mistakes and not cover up things and accept the discipline and severe consequences of his sinful actions. David also genuinely repentant and sought forgiveness after God sent the prophet Nathan to rebuke him in 2 Samuel chapter 12. You see, having a good and godly character doesn't mean you are perfect and never do anything wrong, but it means that you have the sensitivity of heart to know what is right and what is wrong, and if you've done wrong, to admit it, learn from it, and not do it again. Character is important in leadership positions because it determines and drives how you will lead. Will you fall into the various temptations that come with leadership? Will you have the moral standing and conviction to do what is right since leadership requires making the tough calls that is right and not being swayed by the majority opinion? A God-fearing character is important because one who fears God above all is not fearful of men. 
and will allow a leader to do what is right in spite of what others think, even close friends. John Boom writes, The person to whom we ascribe most authority to define who we are, what we're worth, what we should do, and how we do it is the person we fear the most because it is the person whose approval we want most. God designed us this way for it reveals who and what our heart loves. This fear comes right from the place where our heart's treasure is stored. It is the fear of losing or not obtaining something we really desire, which is why it yields such power over us. So my friends, if your heart's desire is to please God and you fear losing that intimate fellowship with God, that you don't care what people will think, you will do what is right. But again, like with being caring, how do you know if a person has a good and godly character? How do you know if that person is God-fearing since we can't see into their hearts? Because if character is doing the right thing when nobody's looking, how do we assess a person's character? The only way to assess is to see their actions over a period of time that evidences good and godly character. How they act consistently over a period of time is indicative of their true character. Look to see how they treat their spouse. How is their family life? What is their reputation from a wide spectrum of people? How are they when they're in a comfortable setting? How do they talk? What do they talk about? How do they act? Because when they're comfortable, their natural self comes out. All of this shows character. Have they shown integrity and good morals in the areas of finance, words and actions, morality, stewardship, and allocation of resources? Are they transparent, and do they willingly put themselves under accountability and checks and balance systems? Because people of character should have nothing to hide and should not be afraid to be accountable to others. Trust me simply isn't good enough. Trust me because I'm a Christian sadly isn't good enough as well because we're all sinners susceptible to temptations. But people of good and godly character should have no issues having accountability in all areas of their lives. As the saying goes, if there's nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear. That's why one of the qualities of being a church leader in the Bible is someone beyond reproach. In life, especially in leadership, things are not always very clear-cut. The right decision or the wrong decision isn't black and white. In fact, it is often grayer and requires great wisdom and discernment, juggling many factors. But without the moral guidance of good and godly, God-fearing character, the complexities of the situation may allow you to justify what is simply wrong. Joseph Badaraku, in a Harvard Business Review article titled, How to Tackle Your Toughest Decisions, shares this type of situation. Becky Friedman was the 27-year-old manager of a 14-person technology group responsible for clothing sales at an online retailer. One of her team members, Terry Fletcher, a man 15 years her senior with a longer tenure at the company, wasn't doing his part. Although his previous boss had routinely given him scores of 3.5 on their 5-point performance scale, Friedman didn't believe his work merited that. And whenever she presented him with opportunities to develop his skills and ramp up his contributions, he failed to follow through. So she wanted to drop his rating to 2.5 and put him in a performance improvement plan on a path to dismissal. Soon, however, two of the company's vice presidents, good friends of Fletcher's, caught wind of her plan and paid her a visit. They asked whether she was sure about what she was doing 
and suggested that the real problem might be her management. Suddenly, the situation was no longer black and white. Friedman had entered a gray area and felt stuck. To find a way out, she turned to the five questions. She considered her options, stick to her plan, abandon it, or find a middle ground and their consequences. She reminded herself of her basic duties to her fellow human beings, including Fletcher, her team, and the VPs. She evaluated the practical realities of her organization. She weighed the different norms and values of her various social circles and groups. And she thought carefully about her own abiding sense of what really matters in life. She suspected that if she pushed forward and gave Fletcher the rating he deserved, she and her team would suffer retribution. The VPs could withhold resources or even force her out of the company. She also worried about Fletcher, who seemed off balance and appeared to have few things going well in his life. How would a poor review and a possible job loss affect him, not just financially, but also psychologically? If Friedman chose option B, however, she would still have a dead weight on her team, which might prevent the group from achieving its ambitious goals and demoralize its most talented and diligent members. The VPs might also take her capitulation as a sign of weakness, which would keep her, a relative newcomer, from moving up in the leadership ranks. Middle ground options, such as presenting Fletcher with further development opportunities or giving him another warning, seemed more promising but carried their own risks. Would they be effective in changing his behavior? Would they still result in backlash from the VPs? Friedman also thought about what she, her team, and her organization cared most about. As a woman in computer science, she knew what it was like to be marginalized. As Fletcher was among the whiz kids in her department, she felt compelled to help him. At the same time, her group prided itself on exceptionally professional performance, and her company, although young, had always claimed and generally proved to be a meritocracy with high standards and a sharp focus on customer needs. This is typical of a true-life situation for those in leadership. It isn't easy, as you may think, to make a decision because of the complexities of the situation. But interestingly, in this secular leadership article, four out of the five questions to ask when faced with your toughest decisions, such as, what are the net consequences of all my options? What are my core obligations? Who are we? What can I live with? Deal with one's character or have a character aspect to it? Will I do what is right considering many factors? You see, my friends, leaders are faced with challenges and temptations all the time. And it isn't so clear-cut as simply being bribed with a suitcase full of money. Quid pro quos or expected exchanges of favors are the norms in the real world. When a favor is called in that goes against your belief, what will you decide to do? A person of character will do the right thing, even if it means being misunderstood, losing your job, and the other consequences that come with taking a stand. Leaders with character are what is most needed in this morally ambiguous generation. This is the type of leaders the Bible talks about that will make an impact both in the secular and church worlds. So in your assessment of a person in leadership or about to be a leader, ask the question, has that person demonstrated a God-fearing, good, and godly character? I read now the second part of verse 72. And guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. In the second half of this verse, we're told that David led the people with skillfulness of his hands. 
the Bible tells us he was capable and competent to lead. And this is the fourth quality we need to assess in a leader, someone who is, number four, competent and capable. Competent and capable. There are people with good hearts, full of character and care, but they simply don't have the skill sets or the competency to lead an organization, a governmental unit, or even a church. Ability and skill are important for the leader or potential leader to have, but mismatched competency will lead to failure. There are people who are great educators and teachers but are terrible administrators, while there are great school administrators but they are terrible teachers. There are progressive visionaries who are terrible at planning and execution, while there are great managers and planners but they are terrible visionaries. In the church, the Bible tells us that every Christian has different gifts, all of which are to help the church. No one has all the gifts. Everyone has at least one. And the best and most effective and efficient use of people is to put them in positions where their competency and capabilities and talents and spiritual gifts will allow them to thrive and succeed. Competency and capability in leaders are demonstrated in his or her ability to lead, govern, and administer. It goes back to experience. Have they shown through experience that they have the skill sets and competency to be an effective leader? Part of a leader's capability is the need to be a good communicator. It doesn't mean they have to be eloquent or have a loud voice, but through their words and actions, they should be able to cast the vision. In their leadership context, they should inspire but are grounded in reality and be able to balance compassion with firmness. We often think that the Bible simply advocates for, quote-unquote, having faith in a God who does the impossible to find success in leadership. And while our God does do the impossible, it is not an excuse not to put in the hard work to equip yourself and put in the plans for your leadership. The parable of Jesus in Luke chapter 14, verses 28 to 33, remind us that planning, equipping, and prayerful foresight and strategic considerations are needed and is biblical. The Bible tells us David was skillful as a king. He was capable in his role and therefore succeeded. Would you want a church leader leading you who has left four churches badly? Do you want a three-time failed CEO taking over the company you work for? Do you want someone who only by virtue of family connections is in leadership? I'm sure you want someone who has proven himself or herself to lead us and has earned it. We are all inspired by capable and competent leaders who know how to inspire the people they lead. The author John Gardner once said, The society which scorns excellence in plumbing because plumbing is a humble activity and tolerates shoddiness in philosophy because it is an exalted activity will have neither good plumbing nor good philosophy. Neither its pipes nor its theories will hold water. We all admire people who display high competence, whether they are precision craftsmen, world-class athletes, or successful business leaders. And most of us want to be seen as competent at our work. For leaders, competence is especially important. It can determine whether followers respect and follow you or don't. Competence comes from knowledge, skills, and experience. Do you want someone leading you who has no idea what they're talking about? I don't think you want a pastor who doesn't know what the Bible is talking about to preach to you. And if a leader doesn't know about a subject matter over which they have responsibility, 
Are they making the effort to try to learn or brush up skills that would better equip them? Because a capable and competent leader doesn't know everything, but they're willing to put in the effort to learn. So when assessing a person for a leadership position, make sure you take into consideration competence and capabilities. It is biblical. So my friends, as we have defined the qualities we need to look for in assessing people to see if they're the best person for the leadership position they're running for or being placed in, know that there are other issues to consider like their platform, their positions on issues, and their convictions. But we'll tackle those other subject matters next week when we talk about issues worth fighting for. But as we prayerfully consider whom we vote for in local and national positions or when we are selecting leaders for our secular or spiritual organizations, or even as we prepare to be leaders, make sure to assess using these biblical leadership qualities. Number one, do they have relevant life experience? Number two, have they shown they genuinely care for people? Number three, have they demonstrated a good and godly character? Are they God-fearing? Number four, are they competent and capable for the task and responsibility they will have to shoulder? May the Lord guide our hearts and minds as we vote in this upcoming election. May His sovereign will be done, and may all leadership positions, whether in the secular or spiritual worlds, be filled with men and women who fear God and will lead with integrity and love for the people they have responsibility over. Let's pray. Father, thank You for these qualities we can see through the life of David. This is inspired Scripture, and so these are the qualities that you saw in David that made him such a success in his leadership. Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom and discernment as we prepare to vote in the upcoming election. May you provide men and women who love you with all of their hearts, who are God-fearing, and will serve and love the people with integrity of heart and with skillfulness of hands. Father, I pray that in each leadership position, that is eventually filled, that all those who stand in leadership will be men and women who are committed to you and who fear you with all of their hearts. Father, we thank you for these guidelines. Help us to assess wisely. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.